<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Ross Perot, 89 years old, died at the age of 89 from leukemia that he's uh, suffered apparently for five or six months. Although at the age of 89, pretty much whatever you die of is probably something, you know, related to being that old. But... I know, I, know, I know a pretty sprightly 89-year-old, actually, right now. But in any case, my mother-in-law, who's just amazing, she's like the Energizer bunny. So I shouldn't sound ageist here. But in any case, I was watching MSNBC this morning. Breaking news, Ross Perot just died. And the person doing the news, as far as I recall, and maybe you recall this differently. If so, let me know. But rewrote history. I know Ross Perot had a whole bunch of different campaign issues that he was concerned about, and one of them was the national debt. But the thing that he really was pumping, the thing that he was really outraged about, the thing that animated his candidacy, the thing that separated him from George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton in the 1992 election was that both Bush and Clinton supported NAFTA, the NAFTA agreement that Ronald Reagan had initiated and that had the final negotiation of it had happened during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration between 1988-1992. And so in 92, when both Bush and Clinton were saying we need NAFTA and we need more of these you know, free, so-called free trade agreements around the world, Ross Perot came out and said, no, that's my recollection. But this morning on the news, all they said was he campaigned against the federal budget deficit and won you know, 19% of the vote, 18.9% of the vote. And then they played a clip of him, and they started the clip with him saying, if you're only in it for the money, you're going to hear this giant sucking sound from the South. Well, what does that have to do with the federal budget deficit? Absolutely nothing. And I'm yelling at the TV. In fact, Nate is sitting over here. He goes, Tom, we need to do a segment called Tom Watches TV. <laughs> so I'm yelling at it. So in the interest of correcting the record... I want to play a clip of Ross Perot, and this was, you know, one of his debates with, with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was then president, and Bill Clinton, who, who successfully challenged him in the 1992 election and became president, both Bush and Clinton supporting NAFTA. And here's what Ross Perot had to say. 
unless your recollection is different from mine that Ross Perot was not campaigning on the issue of no more free trade deals, but instead was campaigning on solely, pretty much solely on the issue of let's reduce the federal budget deficit, which, by the way, had gone up precipitously during the Reagan administration. It started, it was only $800 billion when Reagan came into office. It was $2.4 trillion when Reagan left, you know, which got Ross Perot pretty cranked up. But I just don't remember that that was the core of his campaign because George Herbert Walker Bush was also campaigning on reduce the federal budget deficit, and Bill Clinton tipped his hat to it. And in fact, Bill Clinton gave us, you know, was only the second president since, you know, since basically Nixon to have a balanced budget. The one before that was Jimmy Carter, both Democrats. But anyhow, here's what Ross Perot had to say. First thing you ought to do is get all these folks who've got these one-way trade agreements that we've negotiated over the years and say, fellas, we'll take the same deal we gave you. And they'll gridlock right at that point because, for example, we've got international competitors who simply could not unload their cars off the ships if they had to comply. You see, if it was a two-way street, just couldn't do it. We have got to stop sending jobs overseas. To those of you in the audience who are business people, pretty simple. If you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for factory workers, and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25... Let's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. There you go. It was quite a little riff there at the very beginning of it where he went through this at some length. You can find this on the internet. I mean, this is not hard to find. It's about a two-minute clip, and it's really worth listening to because he just lays it out. He says, you want to outsource your jobs. You want to have no wage controls. You're paying your people a dollar an hour, no environmental controls, but no labor standards, no retirement plan, et cetera, et cetera. This is what Perot ran on. Or am I remembering wrong? Am I rewriting history? I don't think I am. I think NBC did this morning, and I'm not sure why. Either they were being lazy, the producers are all, you know, youngins who don't remember the 1992 election, or we know that some of these big corporations have a clear bias toward so-called free trade deals. Uh, Stephen in Georgetown, Texas. Hey, Stephen, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? I lived in the Dallas area and towards the end of the 20th century, and I worked with Ross Perot's independent movement. And right, the I Reform Party, wasn't it called? Uh, yes, eventually he did form a party, but basically he ran as an independent right. until he formed his party. And basically, he was a very, very wealthy man who understood debt like very few other people did. But the problem he had mostly was what you said with the free trade agreements, which were not free trade agreements. And you picked the perfect clip because Ross Perot was concerned that the cost of responsibility was dropped when you move your factory south of the border. Yep. And that was his main issue. The problem with the deficit, he had demonstrated over a lifetime of making a great deal of money from basically a business he started from nothing. Yeah, he started with a $1,000 investment, the EDS, yeah. electronic uh, something systems, yeah. Yeah, electronic data system. Data, EDS, that's right, yeah. And then he went on to be bought by General Motors, but the man was, to look at him, you would not know that he was worth 10 digits. Right. Um, and he was just an honorable businessman. He, he, he said a handshake 
his handshake was his contract because right. he was as good as what came out of his mouth. Yep. But yeah, he was worried because when you go south of the border, all these charges for responsibility for retirement, for the for uh, employee safety, for the environment, they're gone. And in Mexico, they might have had some regulation on all those programs, but they were basically not not wink wink type programs because if you paid the right people at the time, it was still PRI Mexico, and they owned the government. They could be bought and. They would allow companies to move down, treat workers badly, build uh, substandard plants, and responsibility, the cost of responsibility would be thrown out and pollution, and it, it was just a bad deal. When it has to be multiple hundred pages long, free trade requires that the other side take your product while you take some of their product, but in order to take product from us, you have to have somebody who can afford to buy it. Right. Time, and Mexico, Mexico didn't have that. Yeah, a very yeah, was not a progressive economy and did not have a lot of market. Uh, a well, lot my of recollection market. of the way that Bush and Clinton were both selling it was that by building factories in Mexico, a we don't need those manufacturing jobs here in the United States because we're moving toward a service economy. Everybody's going to be a computer programmer. A, but B, if we build factories, if American companies build factories in Mexico and those pa factories pay well then that will create a Mexican middle class. That Mexican middle class will then want to buy products made in the United States, and that will increase manufacturing in the United States, which will make up for the loss of manufacturing going to Mexico. It was a complete fantasy. It was, it was as much BS as Reagan's trickle-down economics, but that was their sales pitch. And some companies, even before uh, the trade agreement, did do that. And I'm not going to name any because I haven't in some of the companies that did build. <laughs> okay. Stephen, i got to wrap it up. I'm sorry, we're running out of time here, but thank you for the call, and great to hear from somebody who actually knew Ross Perot and worked with him. The other thing that I wanted to mention, Tom Steyer's jumping into the race, and he's a billionaire. We're talking about Ross Perot, a fellow who just called a few minutes ago from Texas who, who had Ross Perot's accent, in fact, and said that he worked with Ross Perot or worked with, you know, the people who worked with Ross Perot. And he said his handshake was as good as a contract. What he said you could take to the bank. Uh, he started his company, EDS, Electronic Data Systems, with $1,000 and sold it to General Motors for billions. Said, yeah, his whole thing was the trade agreements. And that's what it was all about. Well. So anyhow, we had th that billionaire back in 92. Will Tom Steyer be that billionaire this time around or not? I mean, we saw, you know, Howard Schultz of Starbucks coffee fame jump into the Democratic race and then basically say uh, that he was only in the Democratic race to try to push back against people who were too liberal. And pretty soon the people who were too liberal got Howard Schultz out of the race. I mean, he just, he couldn't take the heat. I don't honestly know what Tom Steyer's positions are other than that he wants Trump impeached, which is a fine position, great starting point. But what does he think about Medicare for all? What does he think about a Green New Deal? What does he think about free college? What does he think about, you know, what's his plan for dealing with one and a half trillion dollars in student debt? Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, they both have plans for all of these things, as do many of the other candidates. Can you undo or repeal the 2005 bankruptcy law that makes it illegal for people with college debt to repeal that in bankruptcy, for example? I don't know the answer to these questions with regard to Tom Steyer's position.
And I'm not even sure, you know, I think that there's so much blowback against billionaires that it might really bite him. There's this study that was put together back in 1989 by James Stinson. He's a professor at UNC. And it's called the Public Policy Mood. It's updated every two years. And it has accurately predicted every presidential election, basically since Kennedy and Johnson, with the single exception of Trump. And you and I both know Trump didn't actually win the election, so therefore. And he says that the current public mood on policies like taxation, government spending, environmental regulation. He said it's the most liberal, I'm quoting, he says the annual estimate for 2018 is the most liberal ever recorded in the 67 year history of the mood. Higher than the previous high point of 1961. He said this is where the electorate is. It's like the time of Kennedy and Johnson. Voters are going to respond more warmly to policies from the left. So where's Tom Steyer in this? What do you think about it? How do you think it's gonna play out? Oh, my goodness. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind? You mentioned something about billionaires and how Americans despise billionaires. And um, that's fairly true. I mean, if you think about it. I think we had a love affair with them during the Reagan years, and now we're falling out of love with them. I mean, Steve Jobs was, you know, everybody's favorite person. Ross Perot was much beloved. I mean, there was a time when billionaires were celebrated. But I think that yeah. the, the, the Coke network, you know, what we've seen is kind of the ugly face of the billionaires, the, the, the greed, the, the me, 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 the, you know, no, you can't have that health insurance because I don't want my taxes to go up, that stuff. Well, they're so out of touch with society. I mean, if you look at people like Trump or like Epstein, they're just in their own society itself, cut off from average everyday people. Like, laws don't matter to them. They don't have to work for anything. They've never really worked in their entire lives. I mean, when people attack Trump and saying he's not a billionaire, do people, like, realize, like, no, him being a billionaire is actually a good thing and we should promote it because people don't like average billionaires. Yeah. They like it because he has a celebrity status. I th- yeah, and that's, and that's what made him president. Yeah, uh, Jared, thank you for the call. It's spot on. Marta in Big Bear Lake, uh, California. Hey, Marta, you wanted to get back to Ross Perot. I, I find this an absolutely fascinating topic, and I'm wondering if anybody saw the Perot announcement on CNN. I, I just caught it on MSNBC. And is CNN similarly trying to whitewash Perot's outspoken opposition to so-called free trade agreements? Well, I was on the uh, Ross Perot campaign as far as being one of many, many people that was out on the street corners and, you know, walking the streets, talking to people, passing out flyers. Of course, there was no Facebook. And what I clearly remember was him talking about NAFTA and the incredible job losses that were going to happen. But he also linked that to... Uh, corporate lobbyists running the halls of Congress, buying up our democracy. I remember that phrase. It's just deeply embedded uh, in my mind. I remember him talking about General Motors and how Japan was taking over the automotive industry, not because of anything wrong with the workers. In fact, he went to the GM plant and was talking to the, the guys on the, the floor making the cars who had great ideas for innovation, but the CEOs were up in their, you know, oak-paneled dining rooms on the, you know, 50th floor, not listening to the workers. So it was hurting innovation. 
And I don't remember him talking a lot about debt. And I also remember that he wanted the people to be part of, you know, putting in their own money. He didn't, I don't remember him just dumping his own money, um, you know, unlike what people say. Right. So then came the WTO, the Battle of Seattle, you know, hundreds of thousands of young people. Yeah, this is in 99 or 2000, thereabouts. Yeah, and then Bill Clinton, Secretary of Commerce, was flying Fortune 500 CEOs to Asian countries and to help them relocate. And he actually uh, got indicted, I believe, for um, actually selling uh, seats on the planes. So, I'll, and then I remember uh, what happened to Chiapas, Mexico, and, um, you know, just developing a deep compassion for those people because how NAFTA destroyed their, you know, communal uh, land system. And all of this, you know, the dot, dots were connected for me. Mm-hmm. You know, coming out of the SNL crisis, I lost 60% of my income in one month. Whoa. So people, you know, people were involved. It was democracy. It wasn't just coming from the top down. Yeah. Yeah. And Ross Perot, uh, apparently uh, my memory is correct, at least uh, according to two callers. Thank you, Marta, for that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, if you could take five or 10 years off your appearance in minutes, would you do it? I can tell you, Louise and I have. (laughs) What works is Plexiderm. Uh, it's for under eye puffiness, wrinkles, all, you know. And I, by the way, I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under-eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention me, Tom. Tim in the South Side, Alabama. Tim, thanks for listening to us. What's up? Yeah, I remember Ross Perot, and I was quite fascinated by him. He was one of those bigger-than-life type of people. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think his personality sometimes kind of outshined him to where he it was hard to listen to what he was saying because he was so colorful. But he was irascible. He, I mean, this is he, he, he lost campaign. I remember people leaving his campaign. I'm talking about the senior staff uh, because he wouldn't take their advice. And uh, these were consultants and whatnot. They, he wouldn't take their advice. And he, he kept just you know coming up with. I mean, he, he would come up with an idea and be running with it before his staff even could catch up with him. And it just really upset a few of them. Yeah, he, he, he was that way. Um, but uh, there was two things. Yes, I remember it the way you do. That uh, I remember him in the giant sucking sound and all of that. But the other thing that he did uh, somewhere along the line that, of course, earned him the uh, label of being somewhat of a nut was he said something about 
the Republican Dirty Trick Squad trying to disrupt his daughter's wedding. That's right. Yeah. And in the years since, and I on Maddow and very believable programs, sure enough, if you dig around, there were people like Lee Atwater and Carl Rove, who's still alive, and Roger Ailes, who literally had people do nothing but try to find dirt on people and to make them look silly. Right. So Ross kind of tipped it off. I mean, you also had Hillary who mentioned the vast right-wing conspiracy. So, but that was a few he years wasn't later. As crazy as people thought he was. Oh, I don't. I think he was crazy like a fox. I mean, you know, you don't take a thousand-dollar investment and turn it into a billion-dollar corporation if you don't have something, some fundamental knowledge of how things are working. And I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said for being in the right place at the right time with the right idea and all that kind of stuff. But apparently, he. He made the mistake, and I've seen so many people make this mistake of believing his own PR, you know, of thinking that he really was the uh, the answer to the world's problems. And in fact, he had an answer to a problem that was being proposed, frankly, by both political parties, although it originated in the Republican Party, originated in the Reagan presidency, which was NAFTA, which then became kind of the foundation stone for all these other free trade agreements. It just goes to show that CEOs are not always this, the, as smart is people try to make them out to be. Well, things have changed, Tim. Um, the average CEO, back when Ross Perot was running, the average CEO had been with his own company, and they were usually his, um, for over 30 years. Now the average CEO has been with the company for less than five years. Um, the average CEO back, you know, b before the Reagan era, climbed their way up from the bottom or even started the company. Today, the average CEO, oh, you know, now we have a CEO class, right? Yeah, I mean, yes. you know, it's a whole different thing. It's just a well, they just go from one place to another, and sometimes they don't even know a thing about the industry that yes. they're in charge of. Right. They're just, you and know, in many cases, they're just sociopaths willing to destroy workers' lives or steal their pensions. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Tamara in Carl Junction, Missouri. Hey, Tamara, you're on the air. Well, hello, Tom. I worked for Ross Perot for both his presidential runs because he ran twice. Right. He, the second time was 96, wasn't it? Yes, against Clinton again. Yep. And he was a small guy, but he was bigger than life. I got to meet him in Arizona, and, you know, he flew. And the reason I worked for him, because I remembered as a teenager on TV watching him fly POW wives to Vietnam with supplies for the prisoners. Oh, that's right. He was he was huge on the POW yes. issue and back then, in the 80s, and, 70s and 80s, yeah. Yes, and then in 79, when two of his EDS executives were arrested in Iran, he went to Iran to the prison to tell them he was going to get them out, and he had hired a... a special forces colonel who is retired and they were going to go in and get them hmm. but a few days later the shaw fell uh -huh. and the people overran the prison and they got the men out and brought them home wow. i mean and that's what i remembered about ross perot and that's why i voted for him both times and he won if you recall the first time he won missouri and Arizona electoral college votes. 
in 92. I didn't think he had any electoral college votes. That's that's yeah, he had 19 percent of the vote. Oh, I know. I know that he, he got 18.9 percent of the vote, almost 20 percent. In fact, the last independent candidate to do that was Teddy Roosevelt, who had been president for eight years or for seven years after he left the Republican Party in 1908, I think it was, or 1912. And he started the, the Bull Moose Party and he pulled somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 percent also. But I mean, that, you know, none of us are old enough to remember that. So not bad for a kid that started his life out delivering newspapers on the back of a horse. Yeah, there you go. OK, <laughs> yeah. thanks a lot okay. for the story, Tamara. Great to hear from you. Jim in Lone Tree, Colorado, you've got a different perspective on Ross Perot. Tell me about it. Yeah, haven't we learned anything about putting a businessman in charge of the country? Well, I'm not suggesting uh, <laughs> that Ross Perot should be or should have been president. I, I've actually voted for Bill Clinton in 92, but back well, to Well, he was a spoiler because he, he took away the votes from Bush, and so Clinton got in. That's the argument that the Republicans make. Now, Democrats to this day are saying that he took votes away from Clinton, and Clinton would have had a much larger victory had it not been for Ross Perot. Both Bush and Clinton were in favor of NAFTA, and that was Perot's principal thing, if my memory is correct. So I think he took votes, frankly, from both of them. Well, my father, I asked him about him. He's the second highest ranking sergeant major uh-huh. in the Army, and uh, he, uh, I asked him about him, and he said, GD Nazi fires uh, his people when they get AIDS. Yeah. Oh, geez. I didn't know about that. That. Okay, thank you for that. Jim, we'll be right back. Greg in Las Vegas. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind today? I voted for Ross Perot in the early 90s because Mm -hmm. of his opposition to NAFTA, and that was very clear to me. And then also in 1969, I was on board the airplane of POW wives and families that went to Paris, the charter plane that was paid for by Ross Perot, because my dad uh, was uh, missing in action in Vietnam. I just wanted to share that because it's just another uh, story of his philanthropy. Yes. And uh, in any case, beyond that, I was just reading in the U.S. Constitution, because of all this controversy around the term of the president, if Trump decides to stay on, well, he can't, because in the Constitution, it's described as a term of four years. A term has an ending, a beginning and an ending. Right. So anyway, that's what I have to share, Tom. Well, that's, I, that, that was a good one, Greg. Um, I'm curious, to, and, and feel free to tell me it's none of my business. It's personal, but I'm, I'm curious if they ever found your father's remains or you, you know how that story ended. Unfortunately, no. Uh, it's been a source of a real thorn in uh, my family's side for all these years. Yeah. And I would not wish that on anyone. It would be a, a relief on some level to, to know, but certainly for many, many years now, we've just assumed that my dad was perished, either as a prisoner or when his airplane was shot down. Right. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of tragedy. These are the costs of war that, for example, George W. Bush didn't seem to take into consideration when he got us into Afghanistan and Iraq. Donald Trump doesn't seem to be considering when he talks about war with Iran. It drives me crazy, Tom. It just drives me crazy. I grew up surrounded by military people. My dad was a a test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base when I was a child. And he was asked if he wanted to uh, become an astronaut. He turned it down. Test pilots called uh, the astronauts 
spam in a can. Oh, uh, right. Which is there morbid symptoms? Which, which got kind of uh, morbid after uh, what's his name got cooked in the capsule. Yeah, very sad, very, yeah. very, very sad. But growing up with all these military guys, I certainly, when I was in college, I was voting Republican, but no more. I can't go there. In any case, Tom, I've been listening to your show for a long time, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for calling in today and sharing your story with us. And, and thanks for watching you us there on Free Speech TV in Las Vegas. Terry in Seattle, listening on KBCS. Hey, Terry, what's up? As far as Ross Perot, I'm sure he was a good man. You know, Tom, we are all victims of our own contradictions, and nobody's perfect out there, and I, I'm certainly not. Ross Perot, I think, was dead on right with, with NAFTA. Yeah. I think most of us would agree with that. However, he was a very wealthy man. He did things to keep his wealth, including parking a large amount of his wealth in tax-free municipal bonds, which he held in several states. And these are tax-free. It's a vehicle that the wealthy use to hang on well, not to not just the wealthy. You know, average people can... I mean, what you're doing yeah. is you're basically loaning money to your local city and getting a lower interest rate return than you would get from other kinds of bonds, particularly corporate bonds. But in exchange for right. that lower rate of return, you're getting a tax deduction or a tax... Yeah, a tax deduction. And... and uh, you know, it seems like a good thing to me. I mean, this is how cities can raise money without paying huge, huge uh, amounts of interest. Well, yeah, but I, what's I, bad about that? My impression is, my impression is, it, it, it's primarily used uh, for people who do have uh, uh, more money. Well, the people who who gain, who have the best, you know, the, if you have a high income, if you're paying, you know, thirty, forty, fifty percent income tax rate, and you're looking for income that's not taxed, um, you know, municipal bonds can provide you income that is tax-free, that which is extraordinary if you're paying half your income in taxes. On the other hand, if you're only paying 10 or 20% of your income on taxes, you know, if you're making under 50,000 bucks a year or $30,000 a year under under that, um, then why bother with a municipal bond? You know, go for yeah. a bond that has a higher yield if, you, if you're looking but for a place I'm to park sure, some money. I'm sure his motivation, though, was to hold on to his Of course it was. Of course it was. But, but I can't uh, that fault that. Back, right? I mean, I'd be issue. much more upset with people like like uh, Donald Trump who put their money overseas. Yeah, but I mean, that gets back to the whole issue of if 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 the wealthy don't pay the taxes, uh, the rest of us have to. Okay, right. somebody has to. Right. You know, and, and, and in spite of of of, of uh, his positions, his egalitarian positions on many other issues, on this one. Well, not so much. Yeah, I don't know if Ross Perot was putting money in offshore banks like Trump has done, like the Kushners have done, like, you know, a lot of Republican, the very wealthy Republicans have done. But I got no problem with people buying municipal bonds. But I get your point, Terry. I get your point. Thank you very much for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. Tom Hartman here right with you. Some of the smartest and most effective people in the world have figured out that sleep is basically the foundation on which we build our day, literally every day. And so they're not just trying to get a good night's sleep. They're actually trying to optimize an entire night's sleep. While most Americans aren't even getting the sleep they need, uh, these folks have put together a really remarkable product. It's called the Pod by 8 Sleep. It's the ultimate sleep machine. The Pod is the first and only high-tech bed designed to help you achieve peak mind and body performance. Are you looking to sleep deeper? 
The pod dynamically adjusts the temperature on each side of the bed so you're comfortable all night. The pod will even warm up or cool down your bed. Do you want to know your sleep intel? The pod tracks your biometrics while you sleep with no need for wearable technology. Want to sleep better? Enjoy personalized program and coaching designed by experts guiding you toward true sleep fitness. Because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. They've already sold out their first two batches, so they're going fast. For a limited time, get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Check it out. It's fascinating. On the line with us is uh, Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology and the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. He's the author of several books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. And the recipient of this year's, essentially the Nobel Prize for the Environment, is called the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. He's the author of several books, most recently The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. His website, Michael Mann, with two N's, dot net. Dr. Mann, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's Michael E. Mann at Twitter, and it's great to be back with you. Thank you very much. The climate crisis coming. We have Anchorage, 90 degrees. Today, one of the many things that uh, press conference is being held with Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Earl Blumenauer, they're introducing a resolution in Congress calling for the United States to declare a climate emergency, as has New York City, as New York City has done. Over 700 governments in 16 countries have done so. What is the state of our climate right now, and how does what's going on in Alaska and the massive droughts that are happening, this five-year drought down in Honduras and uh, Nicaragua, which are driving refugees to our southern border, how do these things relate to climate as opposed to weather? Yeah, so indeed, in a very real sense, we are seeing a climate emergency. The fact is that we are now witnessing truly dangerous impacts of climate change on our everyday lives. The extreme weather events that we're seeing around the world over the past several years and uh, this summer here in the United States and elsewhere around the Northern Hemisphere, once again, unprecedented wildfires and floods and heat waves are a reminder that the climate crisis has arrived and it's an emergency in the sense that we are not acting to the extent necessary to avert ever worsening impacts of climate change. We have to do far more. We have to get off the burning of fossil fuels. We need to move toward renewable energy. And here in the United States, of course, we're going in the wrong direction under the current administration, under the Trump administration, which in fact is dismantling the progress that we had made in recent years. I'm a member of AAAS, and so I get science, and I get their newsletter, and I subscribe to Nature, and I don't recall which of those two publications this was in earlier this week, but a rather extensive article suggesting that if we just had a worldwide effort at planting trees in areas where it's actually quite easy to plant trees, that that could suck up as much as a third of all the carbon that has been introduced into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Am I remembering that right? Are you familiar with that report? I did see that study and the widespread news reports, some of which, in fact, exaggerated the conclusions of that study. Mm. It's important to keep these studies in context. Rarely is there one study that comes out and dramatically changes our understanding. This latest study 
is just another study in a whole series of studies in recent years that demonstrate that there is the potential to take some of the carbon that we are pumping into the atmosphere back out of the atmosphere through reforestation and other means. But here's the thing. That conclusion that we've heard repeated that trees could take up to one-third of the carbon pollution we're putting into the atmosphere, that's based on the rosiest of assumptions. Essentially, it assumes that just about every possible square meter of land around the world is used for reforestation, that we basically take all the available land that might need to be used for agriculture and other purposes and reforest that land. And so that is probably an exaggerated estimate of how much reforestation we could do. My guess is that you probably have to cut that figure in half or maybe in thirds. Maybe we're really only talking in practice in terms of what we could practically do uptaking about 10% of the carbon pollution we're putting into the atmosphere. What that means is that this is not a panacea. This is not the silver bullet. This will help out a little bit, and everything we do can help out a little bit. But ultimately, if we do not dramatically lower our burning of fossil fuels, if we do not rapidly move away from a fossil fuel-driven economy, there's no amount of reforestation or natural carbon capture that is going to prevent the ever-increasing levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the ever-worsening impacts of climate change. We're seeing the Arctic melting right now. I mean, to the point that countries are starting to fight over who has shipping lanes and things like that. I mean, literally, we're seeing the Arctic melting. And it's obviously, you and I have had this conversation for several years now, how it's affecting our weather and things like that. But, you know, there's also this concern that uh, as the permafrost melts, it releases enormous amounts of carbon in the form of both methane and carbon dioxide, that there are carbon stores, clathrates and whatnot in the Arctic. And then, you know, we're seeing Anchorage at 90 degrees. At what point is passing the tipping point in that part of the world in a way that is irrevocable and could be, you know, radically destructive. Is that one of the major tipping points that the IPCC is pointing to when they said, I think it was a year or two ago, that we had 10 to 12 years basically to get this thing under control? Yes. First of all, you know, one of the impacts of climate change is actually spread in allergies. And so I'm not going to blame climate change on your sneeze. (laughs) It may well be. That is one of the impacts of climate change, human health impacts, including more widespread allergies. Yeah, this is the first time in my life that I've I've started sneezing when the trees are flowering and things. Anyhow, back to you. Well, there you go. You know, I'm not going to say it proves the point. But seriously, you talked about some of the wider implications of, you know, if we exceed the typically cited level of about a degree and a half Celsius warming of the planet, that number that you cited, the 12-year number, basically how long do we have to decrease carbon emissions by a factor of two? You know, how long do we have to do that before we commit to, you know, catastrophic levels of warming, one and a half degrees Celsius or even two degrees Celsius warming? And basically we've got to lower them by between five and 10% a year for the next decade and beyond. And so that ties into this 12-year this number. Otherwise, we warm the planet more than a degree and a half Celsius and pretty soon more than two degrees Celsius. There are tipping points that lie out there, and some of them we may have passed. We may have warmed the oceans enough and destabilized the ice shells of Antarctica enough to eventually lock in not just feet, but 
meters of sea level rise, 20 feet of sea level rise. We may be very close, if not having already passed that no return, where we guarantee massive flooding of the world's coastlines. And if we're lucky, even if we do guarantee that, it happens over centuries. And so we can slowly adapt and retreat to those changes. If we're unlucky, it could happen quite a bit faster. Now, there are other tipping points that have been discussed that do relate directly to Arctic warming. There's a lot of methane that's stored in the Arctic and the permafrost in the form of what's known as cap rate. And we know that if there's enough warming of the Arctic, the melting of the permafrost, that methane could be released into the atmosphere. And methane is a, an even more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. So it's what we refer to as an aggravating feedback. It can add to the warming. There's no evidence Yet, the science doesn't support the notion that we're close to a tipping point where such massive amounts of methane will be released that it will overwhelm the warming effect of the CO2 that is arising in the atmosphere because of the burning of fossil fuels. So the first order effect, and we have to keep our eye on the ball here, is the continued burning of fossil fuels, the elevation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the warming that it's creating. But there are potential exacerbating feedbacks and the Arctic in particular is a region that's warming faster than the rest of the planet because of the melting of ice and more absorption of the incoming sunlight. It's another one of those aggravating feedbacks. The Arctic warms faster than the rest of the planet. That means we're seeing impacts up there long before we're going to see those same impacts down here. It's a harbinger of what we can expect, that record heat. Uh, baked Alaska, as I referred to it on Twitter, this record heat in Alaska is indicative of what's to come and what's already happening down here in the lower 48. And one other thing, when you warm the Arctic and you melt the ice, it turns out there's an increasing evidence now, scientific evidence, that that can change the jet stream. It can change it in a way that gives us those stuck weather patterns like we've seen last summer and this summer. There's very persistent high-pressure and low-pressure systems that just won't move along. And so you get unprecedented heat drought and wildfire out west, or back east, unprecedented amounts of rainfall when you're stuck under one of those low-pressure centers. And those highs and lows get larger, and they get stuck in place. And that's a linkage we increasingly understand actually relates to the melting of the ice up in the Arctic. What happens in the Arctic, as we like to say, doesn't stay in the Arctic. It's impacting us down here. And I think the first time you and I had a conversation about this, uh, there was a woman who was not a climate scientist who had made this proposal. She was a mathematician, as I recall, and it was about five or six years ago. And we were both, correct me if I'm wrong, at least I was, was like, oh, this is a novel theory. And now it seems to have been proven. Yeah, well, uh, some of the early work in this area was done by Jennifer Francis of Rutgers. I forget what her actual background is, but certainly her work, she was sort of at the leading edge of pointing out these connections in sort of a heuristic manner. And over time, what's happened is there's been uh, quite a bit of detailed science that backs her up. Um, she appears to have been pressing yeah. in that regard. Absolutely brilliant. Dr. Michael Mann, great seeing you. Thank you so much for dropping by. Great to see you nice on fire. And uh, keep up the great work, sir. You're a real hero for all of us. Same to you, my friend. Thank you, Michael. Good talking with you. Dr. Michael Mann. This is the Tom Hartman Program. MichaelMann.net, M-A-N-N, is how he spells his name, and Michael E. Mann on Twitter. You know, the older you get, the more you get these aches and pains and things. And frankly, you don't need to be old to get those aches and pains. 
throughout my life. You, uh, you exercise too much, you get out, you know, you just have a, a heavy weekend, uh, whatever it may be. Anyhow, the best thing that I've found, and, and Louise as well, and, and, and even helps us sleep, is uh, because of its anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving properties, is New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. Uh, CBD oil is not intoxicating, it's non-intoxicating, which makes it really ideal for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids but don't want to get high. They don't want the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that Louise and I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. That's N-U Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil oil on the market. It's 100% organic. It's highly concentrated. It contains no additional additives. It's grown right here in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-LeafNaturals.com and save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-LeafNaturals.com. Com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. I wanted to bring in our old buddy, Paul Gunter. Paul is the uh, director of the Reactor Oversight Project at beyondnuclear.org. The, uh, the Twitter handle is also Beyond Nuclear. And uh, Paul, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I wanted to get, you know, just a, a broad update on the state of, uh, you know, nuclear energy, nuclear weaponry, nuclear this and that around the world. But but also uh, a floating Chernobyl heading for the Arctic. Tell me about this. Yeah, the uh, the Russian government, uh, through the um, oversight of Rosatom, uh, they have got the... Um, Lomonosov floating nuclear power plant uh, in uh, north, off the coast of northwest Siberia, uh, above the Arctic Circle. And uh, this is um, a uh, nuclear power project uh, that has been underway for about a decade now, uh, but they finally got the first of seven proposed floating nuclear power plants. These are these small modular reactors. Um, this, uh, the Lomonosov is, um, it's two 35 megawatt pressurized water reactors on a flat bottom barge that's, uh, 21,500 tons. It's about 450 feet long. And, um, they're, uh, they've got it, uh, uh, it, because it's a barge, it's being, it's been towed, uh, up above the Arctic, uh, into the Arctic Ocean where uh, the Russians are going to use it for extracting oil and uh, natural gas in the Arctic Ocean. And uh, they're also talking about using it for uh, other fossil fuel extraction uh, off um, off the coast of um, um, Siberia. And so um, this particular reactor, it, these 235 megawatt reactors are about eight years behind schedule, and they, they were three times over budget. So this is sort of typical for nuclear power anywhere. They can't complete it on time, and they certainly have no idea how much the final cost is going to be. But this is an extremely challenging and under, unpredictable situation uh, for um, putting 
uh, nuclear power on a on a barge that is um, going to be um, extremely dangerous uh, because of several factors. Uh, because this is a barge, uh, there's uh, of course no uh, uh, steering uh, or propulsion, so this is zero self-maneuvering. It's 100% reliant on towing craft, um, and uh, it's uh, flat-bottomed, so it's going to be low-resistant to wind. It's going to also be highly vulnerable to a tsunami uh, if, if such a thing happens. And, and you know, they're uh, using this um, particular uh, reactor system in a very seismic uh, uh, active area of the world. And, uh, you know, these things are extremely energy-saturated equipment. So you're packing two nuclear reactors into the same one hull, uh, which makes it vulnerable to uh, explosion from things like hydrogen gas or fire, um, high-energy electrical arcs, um, loads of operational radiation. Um, these things are going to be operating for uh, on three-year fuel cycles, and uh, the barge will be carrying about three to four uh, fuel loadings uh, at sea. So they're talking about 10 to 12 years of operation before returning it to dry dock. So you've got, you're going to have all that nuclear waste uh, and liquid and um, Solid. This is, includes the irradiated fuel, all stored on this floating barge. And I would just uh, remind uh, your listeners of the example of uh, one of the last times the uh, Russian government um, had a, um, uh, it was a 600-foot uh, Murmansk cruiser, about 18,000 tons that they uh, uh, were towing from um, uh, the northern uh, uh, parts of Russia to India for scrap iron, uh, and they ran into a heavy storm while they were towing it. And uh, this was in 1994, and the the, uh, the cruiser tore loose from the towing craft and was thrown onto the um, coast of uh, Norway. Hmm. Now, if this had been a nuclear power plant, it would have been you know, really grave consequences. Uh, so, um, you know, this, um, th this is really um, um, a really unprecedented event. And, you know, the weather is getting more and more unpredictable as the climate crisis grows. And uh, to be using nuclear power in this extremely vulnerable area uh, with uh, climate change uh, crisis in the works here, um, you know, we're talking about um, extremely grave consequences uh, if if the uh, uh, if an accident were to happen. Right. I mean, every and, every every winter in the Arctic, they have cyclonic winds. I mean, they're just insane insane winds up there. The uh, Russia is not the only country that you know uh, surrounds the Arctic Circle. Um, are the other countries, are the Scandinavian countries, is Canada, is the United States, um, I believe China has uh, land in the Arctic Circle. I may be wrong on that. Uh, maybe Russia has taken up all that space. But, uh, you know, have any of these other countries that have, uh, you know, land in the Arctic 
uh, done anything? Is the UN doing anything? Is anybody saying anything? No, this is, uh, you know, this is part of the uh, expansion into the Arctic Ocean as the ice starts melting away. Um, but, um, you know, it's really a concern because the, um, the climate crisis uh, is pretty much, you know, just being ignored uh, globally. Uh, but this is one of the more vulnerable regions now. And, uh, you know, we're not even really raising the issue of this whole new realm of security threats that uh, could come from piracy or terrorism involving something like a nuclear, a floating nuclear power station. Hmm. Uh, but um, uh, China is talking about also getting into the business of um, floating small modular reactors, um, but they're shopping around uh, all over the world. And whether or not, uh, you know, these countries are, are going to present a market, uh, it's a real problem uh, because they're now using nuclear power for extracting fossil fuels in uh, a very climate-sensitive area of the, of the globe that's undergoing, you know, clearly some of the most rapid changes from the climate crisis. Yeah, this is remarkable stuff. Paul Gunter, the uh, director of the Reactor Oversight Project at Beyond Nuclear. BeyondNuclear.org is the website and the Twitter handle. Paul, thanks so much for dropping by and waking us up to this. Thanks a lot. No nukes. Yeah, there you go. No nukes. Good talking with you, as always. Paul Gunter with BeyondNuclear.org. It's a, a website worth checking out and worth following. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. The climate emergency rolls on in particular, and this is the part that it just is so frustrating to me that the media is not discussing this. We have gone from literally just five years ago, 1% of the people showing up at our southern border had children with them, to last year, 50% had children with them. Why is that? Well, it turns out that the main reason why is because these countries in Central America are in an area that's been totally whacked by climate change to the point that for five years they've been in a drought. And when the drought is periodically, episodically relieved, it's relieved by torrential downpours. They're getting in Central America what we're getting all over North America, which is actually happening all over the world which is these weather systems are getting stuck. As Michael Mann was talking about, uh, you know, the climate scientists, these weather systems get stuck. And so what would normally be just a couple of nice sunny days becomes a, a you know, a month long drought. And what would normally be a couple of rainy days becomes a two week long flood. And, you know, it's wiping out these farmers and a third of the Honduran economy is agriculture. And these people are literally fleeing for their lives. They're fleeing starvation or in the places where the economy has been really, really badly damaged. What's stepping in to that vacuum, the political vacuum around that and the economic vacuum are the gangs. And and so, you know, they're fleeing violence as, as a consequence of that. And Donald Trump, of course, lying through his teeth about it. His campaign, his, this, is his, this is absolutely hysterical, or it would be if it wasn't so tragic. Mark Sumner wrote just a brilliant op-ed about this over at Daily Kos. 
that Donald Trump yesterday or the day before, it was reported yesterday, I saw it on the news, uh, he was talking about how we've got the cleanest water ever, the cleanest air ever, crystal clear water. You know, we're doing more, you know, this hour-long rant of his was just filled with lies. As Mark Sumner writes, Trump allowed more dumping of mining waste into streams and rivers. He revoked the clean power plan provisions against emissions of particulates. That's the soot in the air, the stuff that causes cancer and emphysema and all kinds of things. He sent the EPA to court to fight against its own rules on heavy metals from power plants, heavy metals that cause cancer and poison us and, 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 and destroy little kids' brains. He overturned the release of the rules on uh, the rules on the release of methane gas. Methane gas, one of the most potent of the greenhouse gases out there. Trump kept pesticides on the market known to cause breast cancer. Turns out that uh, you know if he wants to retain a 53% vote with white women, which is what he got last time, he's going to have to step up on the environment because white women are concerned about the environment, and this is what his this is what his campaign told him. So what does Trump do? He goes out on TV with his coal lobbyist EPA director, former coal lobbyist, or and uh, of course his interior uh, director is the former oil lobbyist. He goes out on TV with these guys and, and lies, just lies through his teeth. He has overseen the biggest rollback of clean water regulations since the Clean Water Act went into effect. He's rolled back regulations that keep factory farms from dumping massive amounts of liquid, untreatable, untreated liquid animal waste directly into public waterways. In our oceans, he's... Excuse me, sneeze there. He's uh, in our oceans. He's uh, moved to allow drilling along the coasts. I mean, it just goes on and on. So, you know, he's just lying through his teeth. Meanwhile, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and Earl Blumenauer held a press conference this morning. I'm guessing you probably didn't hear about this on the news either. Uh, asking for Congress to declare a climate emergency in the United States. An amazing piece uh, published over at the NBCNews.com website. It's a reporting done collaboratively between NBC News and Inside Climate News based out of El Rosario, Honduras, a, a rural town in Honduras. The, the reporters write, last year, farmers here watched helplessly as drought withered their corn and bean crops for the fifth straight year. With nothing to sell and no food supplies to feed their families, they've entered this growing season without any reserves. El Rosario, this is the town, is on the edge of hunger. Uh, this dry corridor, they write, which stretches from southern Mexico to Panama and includes about half of Honduras, has seen some years with up to 40% less rain than normal, interspersed with years of heavy rainfall that washes out crops. So they're going back and forth between drought and flood, drought and flood, which is what's happening in the American Midwest, by the way, as well. Uh, the Honduran agriculture industry employs one-third of the population of Honduras, and it's being wiped out. And this is climate change. Make no mistake about it. As Michael Mann was just laying out, it, it absolutely is climate change. So uh, what is Donald Trump doing about this? He's lying through his teeth. He held a press conference yesterday or a meeting or whatever uh, with his uh, uh, former coal ind industry lobbyist, who now is the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler. Uh, <laughs> you know, his EPA, his EPA guy is a former coal lobbyist. His interior guy, you know, our public lands, is a former oil lobbyist. And what happened was apparently some Republican consultants on the Trump re-election team did some polling, and they discovered that if Trump wants to get back even the white female vote, which 53% of which went for him in the last election, 
that he's way down in that, that he's got to speak up about the environment. So he, he talked for almost an hour, and as the New York Times noted, it was riddled with lies, half-truths, and deliberately misleading statements. Donald Trump has allowed more dumping of mining waste into streams and rivers. He has revoked the clean power plant. This, by the way, is from a brilliant piece Mark Summer did over, Sumner did over at uh, Daily Kos. Just one of the best writers out there. Uh, revoked the clean power plan provisions against emissions of particulates. Sent the EPA to court to fight against its own rules on heavy metals from power plants. Overturned rules on the release of methane gases. And kept pesticides on the market known to cause breast cancer. And all that was just in his first six months. So, you know, it's hurting him in the polls. So he comes out and he says, we've got the cleanest air. We've got crystal clean water. And uh, these are lies. These are just lies. We don't have the cleanest air in the world. Not even close. At the same time that Trump was speaking, the American Lung Association was filing a lawsuit over the destruction of public health. It's incredible. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. In fact, Trump put into effect the biggest rollback in clean water regulations since the Clean Water Act went into effect. I think that was Nixon, wasn't it? So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program, all three hours of our program, anytime you'd like? Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Tom Hart. Thank you. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Hey, there's a new petition over at rootsaction.org. It's a little hard to find right off their homepage, so we put a link to it on our Facebook page, the Tom Harbin Program Facebook page. And it's a petition based on my new book, The uh, Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Here's how it reads. With the support of Tom Harbin, author of The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, we encourage you, this is a petition to Congress, right? We encourage you to enact these solutions for guns that have been long useful for cars. One, require registration and title for every gun. Two, require a license based on a written and shooting range test. Three, require gun owners to carry liability insurance. In addition, we demand that semi-automatic weapons be restricted under the same laws as automatic weapons. It started this as a do-it-yourself petition. It's been sent to the governor of uh, at least one state. Guns, they note, are the second leading cause of death among children in the United States. Guns kill about 34,000 people in the United States. Actually, it was 40,000 last year, two-thirds of those being suicides. Countries with reasonable gun laws don't have the same level of gun violence that we do here in the United States. If you want to see that petition, you can see it over at rootsaction.org and check it out. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.